Hey everyone, thank you for tuning in to How We Evolve. Joining us today is Mira Simone Etlenstein. Mira is an occupational therapist, a writer, a grief coach, and a grief literacy advocate. Tragically, her decision to become a grief coach is a result of her experience losing Brian, her husband, in 2019, who died just seven weeks after a battle with an incredibly aggressive form of cancer. Leaving Mira alone to raise her then three-year-old daughter, who coincidentally happens to be the same age as my eldest son, Jasper. As Mira is also a relative of mine, I watched the whole experience unfold through the Facebook post that she shared. And as we talk about in this episode, watching it shook me hard because Brian was just about the same age as me when it all went down. In reflecting on this conversation, I couldn't help but come back to the words of Tom Robbins, who said, I do not fear death. I resent it. Everything must die, apparently, and I am no exception. But I want to be consulted, you know what I mean? Death is impatient and thoughtless. It barges into your room when you're right in the middle of something and it doesn't bother to wipe its boots. I hope this conversation touches you as much as it touched me and gives you some awareness about how to support people who are grieving or who are in the midst of a significant change in their lives. If you have any comments or questions, please feel free to email me, ronan.levy at gmail.com. And as always, please feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us reach more people. Enjoy the conversation. Hey, Mira. Thank you so much hey, for joining us today. It's so nice to see you. It's been many years. And I wanted to start this conversation um, with a very sincere apology uh, because, and I may get emotional as I talk about this, but I do <laughs> remember watching you go through the process of Brian's diagnosis and, and ultimate death on Facebook. And I totally was not there for you. And I got scared and didn't say anything and fell into the background. And I knew it was, for lack of a better term, totally uncool then. Uh, but with time and reflection and growth, I realized how much more than just uncool it was. So I wanted to apologize for it because the other thing that was going on for me, besides just the awkwardness of how do you support someone going through that? It scared the shit out of me personally, um, because I'm pretty sure Brian, your partner, and I are the exact same age. Um, your daughter is how old now? Seven. So she's the exact same age as my eldest son, Jasper. Yeah. And as a person who's been a hypochondriac all my life, it scared me because I'm like, oh my God, that could be me. And all of it was totally overwhelming to me on different orders of magnitude overwhelming to you but those are all the lame excuses i'm giving for not having been there uh, as a friend as a relative as you're going through that process so i wanted to start by just offering a sincere apology um for that mm, thank you ronan thank you so much you became a grief counselor amongst other things it sounds like you wear many hats these days being a a mother um, and a writer after the, the death of your partner, Brian, a, a few years ago. Uh, can you tell us about your life up to that point and then take us through that whole experience? I think it's, I think it's, I don't know. There's a, a beauty in it. Um, you know, there's a, 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 obviously a deep sadness and tragedy of it, but I think it's a story that needs to be told. So would you mind 
course. Yes. So prior to Brian's diagnosis, I was a more traditional occupational therapist, actually. So I worked with people who had developmental disabilities, primarily on the autism spectrum. I always had this entrepreneurial spirit. I started a business right out of school. Um, and I met Brian in 2012. And yeah, he was just the most amazing person I'd ever met. I was like obsessed with him from the, from the first moment I met him. I met him at a dance party in okay. Toronto and he was really tall, as you, I'm sure, remember. And so I literally just saw his head kind of bobbing above the crowd at this dance party. And yeah, the moment when I met him is really a moment that I think stands out in my mind when I start to question things like faith or this deep kind of spiritual belief that I think I've grown into more within my grief, but that definitely used to be a little more tenuous or foreign to me. And that, but that moment when I saw him, like it truly did feel like I'm going to have, like that person is going to be really pivotal in my life. And it was, wow. it was this, it was very strong, this feeling of seeing him. And that had never happened to me before ever. Wow. And we kept looking at each other and we ended up talking that night and um, yeah, we got together and we had a beautiful love affair. I don't think I'd ever felt like that about anybody ever before. And we fell head over heels in love and we had a baby together and everything was going pretty well. I'd say we had a pretty typical life, I guess. And you know, we both worked for ourselves. We had a lot of flexibility in our work and we had a really healthy, beautiful daughter and things seemingly were great. And then all of a sudden, this mole that was on Brian's cheek under his beard that he'd had since childhood, like he remembered it. He just said that he started to notice that he could feel it. <laughs> and he was like, I don't know, I can't explain it. It's almost like it's itchy or it's like I can just I'm just aware of it and so he went to a dermatologist and she biopsied it and she called him back and told him it was melanoma which is the deadliest form of skin cancer and I remember the moment that he told me our daughter was a year and a and right. he called me and he was like, can I pick you up from work? And I was like, yeah, for sure. And we were just in the car and at a red light. And he just turned to me and he was like, the doctor called and it's melanoma. And I was like, what? What's melanoma? And he was like, that the mole on my cheek. And I mean, the moment that was, a, it's like, I didn't even know what that meant. I didn't know anything about melanoma. To me, I just thought skin cancer was something that you just get it cut out and then that's it and you're fine. And so there, I didn't really have the cognitive knowledge to be scared, but I remember it was like the world stopped. There, It was this frozen in time kind of scenario. And I just remember my internal monologue was keeping positive. Don't show him that you're scared. You need to be strong for everybody right now and just it's going to be fine. It's going to be okay. 
And it was like this really pre-ingrained kind of well-oiled machine of positivity and optimism and things being fine. And then kind of what happened from there was like, we found out that his mole was, it had grown really deep. And the dermatologist was like, I would be very concerned with a mole that was one millimeter deep and his 5.8 millimeters. So it was very deep. Um, And that was sort of our first indication that it was a very intense kind of extreme form of melanoma. And Brian went just totally into like every alternative treatment, everything. He became obsessed with like everything that you could do to cure yourself of melanoma. And then we went back a couple months later. We had to wait, I think, I want to say like three months two or three months we had to wait for them to the surgery that they do is they kind of take out um, a bunch of the tissue and skin from around where the mole was to make sure that it hasn't spread anywhere around it first and in the meantime they like you know scanned his whole body made sure it hadn't spread anymore and we were told there was a high likelihood it would have but it actually hadn't okay and by the time he went back and had that surgery they told us oh my gosh you know you're so lucky it hadn't spread anywhere. It hadn't even spread into the skin around where the mole was. Like, this is so uncommon for a mole that deep. You're just, you're so lucky. And so we felt like we'd been given another chance at life. We were like, oh my gosh, we're so lucky. All these alternative things that he was doing worked. Right. Wow. You know, we felt so, this so triumphant. Like we just dodged the biggest bullet. And oh my gosh, we're so, 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 so lucky. And then we went on for another year and a half to live this amazing time where we just felt like so grateful to have each other and we were so happy. And then, uh, yeah, a year and a half later, I all of a sudden I was like, we need to have another baby right now. And that I had this real intuition that we needed to get pregnant. And he was like, I think something's wrong with me. And I was like, what do you mean? What do you mean? And he's just like, I don't know. I can't explain it. And I was like, what? He's like, I think I'm having this like spiritual awakening or something's going on. Like, I'm not myself and I don't want to, like, I think we should wait. And then like a couple weeks later, he woke up feeling sick and we thought he had a flu and he just kept getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And eventually, you know, not eventually, it wasn't, it was quick, like, Pretty soon after that, he went to our doctor and she was like, I think you should go get a scan. And I remember him telling me that. And I was like, why would she want you to go get a scan? I don't understand. And he was like, I think she thinks it could be the melanoma back again. And I was like, back again? What do you mean? It didn't even, it was taken away. Like, I don't understand. Because no one had ever explained to us that melanoma can stay in your bloodstream. It can like one little tiny minuscule cell can still be yeah. in you that they wouldn't even see under a microscope and it can rear its ugly head. And so for whatever mysterious reason, that's what happened with Bry. And when he went for his scan, um, they emailed us, believe it or not, they emailed us the results. So on a random Thursday night, we got this email that was a death sentence. It Jesus. was you know, you have cancer in like every single organ, including your brain. Um, obviously, it's stage four. And he died seven weeks after that. So, you know, 
super, super traumatic, super, super quick. Yeah. And I just witnessed this person who was one of the strongest, most healthy, most energetic, full of love person just literally wither away and die from this most aggressive cancer that some of the nurses told me it was the most aggressive cancer they had ever seen. Jesus, very sorry to hear that uh, and that you had to endure that, especially with a young daughter. I have lots of questions. Um, one that one that you touched on, and it's something that spoke to me because uh, 2000 and I guess 14, my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer for a second time. And then fortunately with surgery and chemo, it seems that it's been remission now for eight years or so. But I remember going to that first oncology appointment with her and feeling that exact same sense of having to feel strong, uh, be the positive one. And, and, and in a conversation with my teacher, Irwin, he's like, why do you need to feel that way? Why do you think your mom wants that? Or do you think your mom wants to see uh, the honest response from that? And I'm curious to just probe into that a little bit further because uh, you flagged that as what we're kind of taught to do. Can you expand on that a little bit? Absolutely. And I think that's been one of the biggest teachers for me in terms of this entire grieving process, because, you know, that's all well and good for when the outcome is positive. But when the outcome is the worst case scenario over and over and over and over and over, which was our entire cancer journey that second time right that's what happened it was every single moment was just like wow this is the worst case of what this could be and this is the worst case of what this can be and oh maybe we can try this and nope 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 it's actually the worst so i think that whole ingrained thought pattern nervous system pattern all of that was just completely dissolved for me and that's been one of the biggest changes I would say in me as a person is that I'm no longer that person and I I think you can also go so far in the opposite direction which I think I did for a time which is when you go through a huge trauma sometimes you just always jump to the worst case scenario because then yeah. that's what you experience so I'm coming back to middle now but I think being able to hold space for the reality of what's going on and not paint a positive picture is really deeply uncomfortable. And for a lot of us, it certainly was for me. And I came, I came to that learning while Brian was still alive, which I'm grateful for because I know a lot of other young widows where, you know, they never had a lot of the hard conversations. They stayed positive until the dying breath. And then have huge regrets after of not having, because because death can be such a, it can be such a catalyst for connection. And and this is the ironic thing about losing the love of your life to death because we reached a level of closeness that most couples don't have because I walked him to death. And it's similar to birth in certain ways, how you kind of gain a closeness through walking with your partner through birth. But I found that the death process even more, even more so, um, really brought us to this place of greater closeness. So I'm grateful that I kind of shifted gears from that 
positive, positive, positive to an aw- I, I don't I I'm so grateful that that happened for me. There was a point when I just knew that he was dying. And I completely shifted gears and realized like I had this intuition, this time is precious. There, there is going to be this intense learning that can happen during this period of time. And also I don't want to miss the opportunity to give him the death that he deserves by ignoring the fact that this is happening. Um, So, so I did make that shift, but for, for sure, during that first cancer experience, I was very much feeling like I had to hold that role of the positive one, the one who can keep it all together, the one who will keep everything going so that we don't completely fall apart. And I think, I don't know if that's like good or bad or wrong or right. Um, I had a little girl too, and I felt like I wanted her to not have a mother who was completely falling apart as well. And that's been an ongoing, <clears throat> an ongoing part of my grief journey. That's been a constant pull and tug and renegotiation within myself of how much to fall apart and how much to hold it together for her. Yeah. So that was a lot of like, a lot of me just <laughs> kind no. of barfing all my thoughts i I think i think it's it's beautiful and and thank you for sharing and if you're okay with it i'm gonna ask a few more questions because right now my my neighbor just over here um he was diagnosed with stomach cancer and again I, i find myself in the same kind of place now maybe it's not my role as neighbor to be the person isn't is trying to be real about it. Like it sounds like you evolved too from the person who's like, I'm gonna hold it together and be positive to being a lot more real. Um, but I'm also trying to figure out like how do I approach it in that conversation. Yeah. Um, to the extent that you can in a way that someone listening might be able to translate into something actionable if they're dealing with something even close to approximating this. How did that shift happen? Like how did you show up not as this it's not even naive it's probably false optimism um into being real and what did that that look like like how did you show up and and i remember it 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 brought me to tears actually when i was reading it and and i'll share why later but you wrote in in an article you posted online about brian asking you like am i dying and you're like yes you are something along those lines and i'm like Like, I don't, I don't know if I could ever utter those words to somebody I love. I'm, I'm curious to know, what did that shift look like? How, how did you act differently if, if someone was going to say, how do I do that, Mira, for my own circumstances? How does one do that? Or what would you recommend? I'm sure there's no single right answer. Yeah. Okay. So first of all, I think... When somebody has cancer, a lot of the time they do just really want to stay positive. And so it is a very tricky path to walk because you, as somebody who wants to be a support, you want to give them that positivity. And as you know, from your own personal experience with your mom, lots of the time people do survive. And so I think 
okay to hold on to that optimism, that positivity, if that's realistic, if that's what serves you, if that's what you want and what you need. So as a support people, often we're following their lead to a certain extent. You know, we don't want to just be super negative if they're still in a place of positivity. And for me, it was really based in a deep intuition. And I think it's different from the outside when you're looking in and you're imagining this scenario. But in reality, I knew with every fiber of my being that he was dying. And I felt that and I could, it was, I don't know how to describe it because it was a feeling and it was just a knowing. I could see that he was, he was leaving. I could sense that. I could see that the treatments were not working. I could see that every day he was getting worse. And so at a certain point, and I don't know if I can even say for sure what, if there was a single moment I don't know. I do remember that. So a very common thing when somebody's dying from cancer, which is a big problem that a lot of a lot of survivors of traumatic loss, cancer loss will talk about. Is the fact that a lot of the time the doctors won't admit when somebody is dying. And so they will they will maintain this false optimism. Which can really rob patients and families from having a beautiful death, which is what I feel that Brian had. And it's a it's an issue and it's a problem within oncology and within the medical profession that a lot of us grievers talk about after we go through like walking a spouse through cancer or something, because it's just the story you hear over and over and over again. But for me, I feel somewhat fortunate in that we got kind of linked up with this naturopathic doctor who specifically worked in oncology in Toronto. And we barely even got to see her because Brian's journey was so quick that I think we I think maybe he made it to see her once and could barely even get there. Like he was that sick. I remember how hard it was to just even get him like into her office. Right. And she was basically just like, there's nothing that can do for you at this point. Like you're you know, and then I remember going back on my own at one point to pick up something that she had recommended for him that was going to help ease his symptoms somehow. And I remember she was the one who sat with me and no doctor had said this to me yet, but she was the one who looked me in the eye and she said, I've been working in oncology for 25 years. Your husband is dying. You can see how much his muscles have already atrophied. Like even if he were to somehow miraculously survive at this point, which I think is like such it's such a small amount he would be irrevocably changed the radiation they're doing to his brain he's changed forever like she was very specific in this way that the doctors just had not had the courage to say to me right and I remember she was just like these are sacred days and she looked at me and she was like these are sacred days for for you and him right now and it really landed so I think that was that conversation was part of it but when she was telling me like It wasn't a shock. It rang true because I already knew it. What she was saying was exactly what I knew in my heart. And it just, I just knew it. And so I don't even know how to answer your question, except that I think when you're in the situation, if you are honest with yourself, which I get is hard for a lot of people because it's so hard to face. So a lot of people just shut those feelings out. But I 
I just knew. And I think the more interesting question to me that I've asked myself is like, how did I have the courage to listen to that knowing? And I don't know why, except that I feel that, you know, unfortunately, this whole experience has helped me unlock this part of myself that I consider now to be a gift of holding space for these really uncomfortable realities, specifically around death and illness and grief. And that kind of came into fruition in those moments. Yeah. How do you hold space for yourself and what you need in that moment while at the same time holding space for Brian or anybody else? Uh, and how do you, I, I mean, maybe the answer is you do lose yourself during that time. And that's part of the process. But how did you navigate that? It really did become all about him as he was dying. And that is something that is common, I know. And it's something that I have had to now kind of almost go back and give myself what I needed in those moments because nobody was really caring for me. And I think this is why now I know about this incredible profession of death doula, which I don't know if you've heard of that, but I didn't know that was a thing at all. But it's similar right. to a birth doula, except that these are people who can really hold space, you know, in similar to how a birth doula would really hold the space and care for everybody, including the partner. The death doula would have ideally been somebody who would come in and cared for me and held space for me and what I needed because. Yeah, I didn't really have that. And it was all about Brian. And our situation was unique in that it was so fast as well, so that there was no time. Like, I think if there had been more time, perhaps we would have had better systems in place for me to have more support. Right. I was also very particular about who was allowed into our sphere. And I really wanted to limit a lot of the outside world to have this sacred process with him so I probably also shut out certain types of support that could have been offered to me again maybe because it was so fast that most people hadn't really adjusted to what was going on I'm also a very sensitive person so there was a lot of you know for example friends coming over and being like oh my god Brian was diagnosed with cancer like let me come over and then they'd come over and they'd see him because he was not a person who was diagnosed with cancer he was a dying person Right. That's so different. And so people would come over and then I was holding all of the emotion that I could see in them and how freaked out they were. And I was just like, I can't hold that on top of what I'm already holding. So it felt like easier for me to just kind of go inward and kind of shut people out right. and do it all and take it all on. I did let a lot of people support me with our daughter, which was good. So I had that kind of covered, which was amazing. But I really took on Brian's death as like my thing. And luckily, I didn't have a lot of other family members who wanted to argue over how it was going to happen or felt controlling over it. Everybody let me. Everybody agreed. Mira knows him best. Mira knows what he'd want best. And 
you know, we were alone when he died, which is what I wanted and what he wanted. And I know I feel grateful for that because I know in a lot of families there can be issues around that, like different ideas of what the person wants when they're past the point of being able to speak for themselves. Yeah. So I feel grateful for that. But in terms of what, like, what could help take care of me, I... I'm doing a lot of that work now. I'm doing a lot of that work in the years that keep continue to go on of almost like time traveling that time and giving myself the type of support that I needed. The things that I needed to hear that nobody knew that I needed to hear. And so for me, it's it's been a real internal process of growth. And, and what are those things with the benefit of hindsight if, if you could have had a death doula there or you know I, I just did this exercise i know a psychodrama where you have the ideal parent show up or the ideal friend or the ideal grandparent and give you in that moment what you needed and, the, and this may be specific to you but i guess maybe through your pr- practice now as a grief counselor you may see kind of recurring themes about what people need in that moment do you know if you could have rewritten that as of today? And I'm sure it's going to be a constantly evolving process, but what are some of those things that you needed in that? So I'm going to just tell a quick story that I think leads well into what I did need because it really shows what was harmful in that at that time. Sure. So I had this experience that I have thought about so many times since Brian died it just pops back into my brain all the time. And a lot of my memories are very jumbled still. I, it was so traumatic that I, there's so many things I don't remember, but there are certain things that I remember with intense clarity. And this is one of them. So he was actively dying and I had gone into the kitchen on the palliative floor of the hospital where he was dying. And I don't remember what I was doing specifically, but I, mu- I must have looked somewhat distraught obviously and I remember his palliative care doctor so this is a doctor who specifically works primarily exclusively within the dying process day in day out he came up to me and he said if you are still crying every day in six months you have a problem seek professional help Jesus. And I was so vulnerable at oh this God. time. I remember just like it really stuck with me. And I just like looked at him and I made eye contact with him. And I was just like, okay. Like I was just like, okay, remember this? This is the doctor's telling you this. And you you need to remember this is important. And I was it's like, okay, six months. Like, that's not too long. I can survive six months. You know, I'm like, okay, that's it. okay, I can do this. I'll remember this. And fast forward four and a half years almost now later, I'm just like, oh my gosh, like, that is so not what I needed to hear. And that type of a statement creates so, so many problematic issues with how we deal with grief and the expectations that we have of ourselves. And I, luckily, I have this propensity to just educate myself about things. So when Brian died, I just became obsessed with learning about grief. And so really early on, like before the six month mark, I was very well aware that that is a completely outdated model of grief. It is 
totally not based in actual positive uh, outcomes for people having actually being well adjusted to their life and having ongoing continuing bonds with their person which we now know is actually healthy and good and okay and I just it was such a harmful statement so when you ask me what I would have needed I think part of it is somebody to tell me that it's okay to fall apart it's okay to feel like the world has ended because the world has ended it's okay to feel like you will never be the same. You will never be the same. There's no timeline. There's no ending point. There's no goal. This is a, disrupt a huge disruption, a huge transition. It's an initiation, really. Once you go through a huge loss of someone who you can't live without, you've been initiated into a different human experience of understanding what it is to live here in our bodies and your spectrum of emotion is just hugely expanded. So I think I just needed that type of real rounded, honest understanding of what I knew again in my heart to be true, which is this isn't something I'm just going to get over. It's going to be forever. It's going to forever alter the way that I move within the world. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um. <clears throat> yeah. I think also, sorry, one more thing. Uh -huh. I, I think I also really just needed somebody to, and this is maybe a more personal to me thing. I'm not sure if it would apply to everybody, but I, another thing I've learned through this grief process is that I have traditionally had a really hard time openly showing my emotions and being honest about my emotions. I always had this story in my head that I was overly sensitive and I had to keep my emotions in because I always have felt things very deeply and had very deep emotions, but it felt private to me. Like I couldn't share it with people. And that continued in early grief, partly because of shock, but also because then there was this added story of well, I only showed my emotions with Brian. And so this was a sacred thing between us. Now, if I'm just blowing my emotions all over the place, it takes away this special bond that we had because he was like my first person who I really showed my actual emotional side to, my actual emotional depth, which is I have a very strong emotional depth to me. I'm a highly emotional person. My emotions are, are deep and beautiful. Now I've learned. But I had this story in my head from childhood that like I was too sensitive and I was too dramatic and my emotions were too big and I would never get anywhere if I continued to let my emotions just run astray. And so there was that whole story for me as well. And I think another thing that would have been really helpful for me in the grieving process was somebody to really say, like, let it out, because there was this fear that if I let it out, I would never stop crying like it would just literally just never, ever, ever stop. So I think just having somebody really safe there. And sometimes it is easier with somebody who you don't know, like as well, like a death doula or something to just be like, I can hold this. Your emotions aren't too big for me. It's okay to feel them. Like cry yourself until you can't cry anymore. And that's okay. I think that would have been very, very helpful for me as well. Um, <clears throat> thank you. 
for sharing all that. Uh, so for everybody listening, uh, Mira and I are relatives. I was actually thinking about sitting down and trying to do the math of exactly I how we're related, say. but uh, Mira's, um, I guess, aunt was married to my grandmother's brother, uh, so my great uncle. So I don't know what that makes us, probably nothing, but we went to a lot of Passover <laughs> seders together. Um, and uh, right as we were just kind of talking before we started recording, we were talking about how there was like a, an awareness of each other at Passover seders before. And, and, um, and, and, and I'm thinking maybe that was it, which is like in so many ways, what you described of yourself is very similar to me. I'm just becoming aware of the fact that I'm a sensitive person. Uh, but it was probably there all along, and um, it was just very good at putting the box, shoving it to the side. Yeah. Um, and so, and anyway, like I was like, "There's a sensitive soul here." Ding, ding, <laughs> ding, ding. That just, may have ooh. been it, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> but thank you for sharing all that. It was it was deeply touching. And, um, it's a it's a theme that seems to be coming up that touches me a lot um, in in these conversations which is like being allowed to let things fall apart you know um at least emotionally because um, there's always this i think inclination to try and hold it together yeah. and it's exhausting to, to be quite honest so that that really touched me so so thank you for sharing that um You said that you wanted to give Brian a beautiful death. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Yeah, I mean, I wrote I wrote a whole piece on that exact topic called His Beautiful Death. And I think when I wrote it, I wrote it really early on. I think I wrote it about six months after he died. And I think at the time, I was trying to come to terms with the fact that his death was beautiful, even though it was also the biggest tragedy of my life and the hardest and most painful experience of my life. So I think before I describe kind of what I mean by the word beautiful in the context of death, I think it's so important to know that it doesn't negate the fact that it was horrific and painful and terrifying and all of those things. And I, I had so much difficulty publishing that piece because I was so afraid that people were going to think that I was like spiritually bypassing how painful that experience was so sometimes when I say when I say that I always want to give that caveat to be like it was also horrible but honestly I just believe that these transitions that we go through birth death you know other types of those are like the two really big ones but big transitions I think that there is just so much beauty in the way that they touch something else that's outside of this life. It's like when Brian was dying, I just kept having these real realizations of all the similarities between the dying process and the birthing process. 
And first of all, the energy, there, there was some a similar kind of energy of something like opening up to either bring something in or for something to go. And I could just feel that. It was like this, everything's intense. It feels like there's this it's this really special sacred time everything is slowed down everything's quiet it's like the the respect the admiration for the journey that is leaving your body or entering your body is so intense and when i intense to me that word it's just like but the intensity is beautiful like even if it's painful there's just this beauty in it in the amazingness of the fact that we are in these bodies in the first place and like look somebody can just leave and then they're literally gone and watching that process it just it made me realize how sacred this time actually is which I think we all know in this kind of cerebral way but we don't want to think about it because it can bring up fear, it can bring up anxiety, it can it brings up all like even what you were saying at the beginning of how, you know, learning of Brian's death. Yeah, it's like I think that is why it triggered so many people in our lives because it was like, oh, this guy was just super healthy and walking around, you know, last Seder or whatever. And now he's dead. How? Oh my God, I can't even think about that. And so I think we do this disservice when we don't really let ourselves because then we're, we, when we don't let ourselves think about that, we're also not fully appreciating how amazing it is to be here. So I think that's part of it is it kind of the beauty of being here was really made so glaringly obvious to me. But also there was this, again, an intuition where I was just like, this is a sacred transition and I want to mark it in these special ways. And I really did actually take a lot of the same strategies that Brian had used for me when I was in labor. And so I played like the same playlist. I had my sister go to our house and get these very specific items that I really wanted to have around us. I had like the lights dimmed. I was doing qigong around him and different types of like energy sort of things that I had learned through practicing qigong for the year prior to his death and I kept it really quiet I kept it I was really particular about who was allowed to enter this space I I remember I googled what do people want to hear when they are dying <laughs> and there was and there was this article that came up and it was like the top five things that people want to hear when they're dying. I was like, amazing. Okay. And it was like, I, I remember I wrote in my journal, I wrote like one, two, three, four, five. And then I just riffed on each of them okay. for like so long. Like I just sat there and I was like, blah, 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 blah. and I didn't even know if he was listening or if he could hear me because he was kind of in and out of consciousness. But then I remember at one point I just like stopped and I was like, oh, and I like took a sip of water and I was like, I've been talking for a long time. And he like opened his eyes and he was like, well, don't stop. <laughs> so I was like, all right, okay, good. This is working. So that, I mean, that's kind of like a, a cute story, but it really did feel like this is the most sacred time yeah. and I need to make the most of every single moment 
he was saying the most amazing things to me. Like the things that were coming out of his mouth were so profound. It was like he was half not here anymore. So it was like this real wisdom was coming through him. So I was like writing down all these things he said. I I was having all these realizations about life. So I was I, I have like a full journal that I wrote just in the last days of his life because I was just like, oh, my God, this is I'm the downloads that are happening about the sacredness of life and and grief and all of these things were just coming into me that I'm like still working through. But yeah, I just there was and then yeah, I think also there was just something that came over me where I was just like I want him to I want him to I want this to be as easeful for him as possible. I want him to know that we're going to be okay. I don't want him to worry about us. I don't want him to hold on. I want his soul to gracefully make this transition and you know, not cling to this physical reality because he's clearly dying. Like this is a force beyond our control. And so I want to work with him to make this transition instead of fighting it for selfish reasons of fear of what's going to happen to me the moment that he dies. And so I just kind of put that out of my mind and it was all about him. It was all about him having the experience of a beautiful death. The last thing you said, <laughs> I'm going to summarize it, but giving him permission to leave, yeah. right? Without the the anxiety <clears throat> of what's left behind. Um, it, it touches me a lot. Um, I remember doing a, a session with Erwin um, talking about the fact that I'm a bit of a hyper con. So he's like, <clears throat> what are you scared of? And he's like, I'm dying. I get it. But like, really, what are you scared of? And uh, so we started probing into it and he's like, are you uh, scared uh, because you won't be a father to your children? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's it. Like, uh, I'm not going to be that. <clears throat> and um, <clears throat> he also said, uh, would you be in, embarrassed or, or, you know, feel shame if, if you got a cancer diagnosis? And I'm like, yeah, of course it'd be mortifying and I guess the truest sense of the word you know that conversation really delved into conversations about chauvinism and, and the masculine and feminine but he said listen you're more afraid of not being a parent and and being embarrassed about it than you are actually about dying now just put that in perspective and and it's true and yeah I didn't know Ryan um but I could definitely say that in his shoes, those would be thoughts running through my head. Uh, and so to give permission be like, it's okay. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. You know, if you think about the words of beautiful death, to me that, that resonates. So um, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, oh, actually on, on that note, um, to the extent you can, what was it like through his eyes? As it sounded like you came to acceptance relatively quickly. Uh, did he go through the same thing? And and some of those 
anxieties that I, I just mentioned, did, did they come up or, or did he kind of accept things? How, how did it, to the extent you were aware, how did it look through his eyes? Yeah, it's, it's, you know, that's something I've thought about a lot and I've asked myself a lot. When he initially had his first diagnosis, when it was just the mole and he was, you know, quote unquote, totally normal, but just had this mole. Yeah. But never any other symptoms. He had very severe anxiety at that point. I mentioned before he went all out on every kind of alternative treatment. He became obsessed with researching and understanding every potential thing. He was so desperate to be okay and to live. Like It became a total obsession and he really went all in. He was already really, really into health. And, you know, also a little bit of a hypochondriac, which is really interesting. And that didn't really come to be the second time. So I have spent a lot of time wondering the reason for that. You know, first of all, he potentially maybe had this same awareness that I had. Yeah. Although he didn't actually voice that to me. He didn't say, I know I'm dying. He asked me that time that you had referenced. Yeah. But that was like days before he died. Like that was when he was like, you know, a hundred percent in, you know, hospice and they weren't treating him at all. So it's hard to know because he also had a number of tumors in his brain. And from what I have heard from a lot of other people who have walked their partners through any kind of cancer that includes tumors in the brain, you know, we were extremely lucky and that Brian's personality wasn't changed at all. Like there's horror stories, you know, that's a whole other journey to go through when your person's personality completely changes and they become really angry and they don't know who you are. I know other widows whose partners had the exact same cancer as Brian where that happened, where they didn't recognize them. And that's a whole other journey to go through. So I'm so grateful we didn't have to go through that. But I do wonder, you know, sometimes I, I Brian became like even sweeter, even more gentle, even more grateful, even more um, complimentary as he was dying like these were qualities of his personality already and it was like they were exaggerated when he was dying and it's almost like sometimes i wonder i'm like were the tumors just in some specific part of his brain where he was just like the wisdom part or something like it just seemed like he fully was just in the moment and i yeah i don't know if that was tumors i don't know if that was just him um he was also on so much pain medication because he had tumors all in his whole spine the bones of his shoulders the bones of his hips like i was told by multiple doctors like he must be in absolutely excruciating pain like the extent of that it's supposed to be so painful when you have the bone the cancer in your bones right and you know he didn't he didn't complain of pain all that much and I, well, I don't know the answer to your question. And I've, I've thought about it a lot. And, you know, he didn't talk all that much about his, about his death. 
Um, we had one conversation, one conversation when he was still at home and somewhat able to manage where he told me that because we had taken some a little sperm sample right before he had his first treatment. And he just said to me, like, out of nowhere, he said, do you think you're going to use that? And I was like, I don't know. And then he's he said, I just want you to know that it's totally your decision. If you do, great. If you don't, great. Like, that's the only time he said, he said, if I die, I want you to know. And that was like the only time he really brought it up until that time that he asked me if he was dying. So yeah, I don't know if he was quite there or able to talk about it. And I do I do have like regret about that and wish that we had had more time, that there had been more like everything was on fast forward, like, you know, five times speed, just so fast. And yeah. it's not like we had that much time, like every single day. It was like, OK, today we have to do this. And just getting him to the hospital was so hard and took everything out of me. He was in so much pain, even though like I know he was, even though he didn't complain about it because he just wasn't really talking. And you could tell that he was going inward and having this insane process happening in his body and his soul and his mind. So, yeah, I'm not quite I'm not quite sure because the, we didn't have the conversations and maybe it was more of an energetic understanding between us than a real the words understanding you know i realized after i asked that and you started answering that was like a very hard question on on many levels so i appreciate responding to it yeah um, it's a good it's a good question and i i i would love to i would love to know um, yeah yeah Um, how do you think about grief? What, what is grief, uh, in, in your mind? Um, very early on in this podcast, I was fortunate to have, uh, a doctor by the name of uh, BJ Miller come on and he had a very traumatic experience in life where he got electrocuted and lost many limbs, barely survived, and had a near death experience. And he talked about grief as being I think he used the word beautiful, this beautiful energy. Uh, it's a transition energy that takes our attachment from the physical and, and moves it into the emotional. Um, so you don't lose people per se. Your attachment to them just changes from the physical to the emotional. Um, but I'm curious to know how, how you think about that because it is a poorly defined emotion, I think, that most people don't really know how to feel it, how to express it, how to move through it, how to accept it. So I'd love your thoughts on that. Yeah, and I love that description. That's beautiful. I I think of grief as a, certainly a set of emotions with like multifaceted layers of different emotions. But for me, it goes beyond the emotion and it's it's almost like an awareness. I feel an awareness and a capacity to hold the reality of the impermanence of everything. And grief just knocks you in the face with that in a way that I don't know that anything else does. I talk about this a lot in my grief groups and, you know, in my 
published pieces and things I say on Instagram is this this idea that with everything else in life before I went through this, I always felt like, okay, this is a hard chapter that I'll get through, or this is a hard thing that there is an ending to it. And grief is the first thing that I've experienced in life other than love, where there's, it, it just is. Once you've been initiated into it, there's, there's no ending. And I think that's where people get really trapped because they have this expectation based in the way that our society views grief, you know, articulated so well by that palliative care doctor, you know, and that just shows how deeply embedded this understanding is that grief is a process with a timeline that you move through and then you get to the other side and then you go on to live a good life again. And the way that I see grief is it is an initiation into a greater awareness about what life, this physical life really is. And that's a really hard reality to hold for a lot of people. And so people will cling to these ideas of how do I get through this? And I, I can't tell you the number of people that like reach out to me on Instagram and are like, what do I do? How do I get to where you are? How do I get happy again? And I'm just like, I'm still grieving. I have worked through enough of my grief and like opened the curtains and allowed myself to experience it, which means I've lost more people and more things from my life, by the way, because when you are honest about your grief, you tend to lose more because people don't want to see that. So but it's it's a high price to pay, but it's so worth it because when you're honest about your grief and you allow it to take up space so that you're not always trying to shut it out, you actually find that in my experience, you find that you are able to expand your capacity to feel in both directions. And I'm not so scared of grief anymore, which means that there's all these other things from my life from before that I'm now able to feel or grieve or give space for that I couldn't in the past. And that ultimately has led to me just having this fuller spectrum. So I think sometimes people see me and they're like, oh, she looks so happy. And like a lot of the time in my grief group, people, people are like, how do we get how do we get happy like you? And I'm just like, I'm feeling it all. <laughs> I let myself feel it all. And that has that's really served me. And I still grieve so deeply all the time. And things are always still coming up to the surface. And yeah, anyways, but to yeah, to me, grief is really this this just this greater awareness about impermanent nature of life which is hard but it's so true so i think because it rings so true we we know that we know this everybody knows this but so many of us don't look at it when you're scared to look at the truth of life you end up living in this box so it's like an expander i feel like it's expanded me in all these different ways yeah thank you that's that's beautiful it's this is gonna parlay into my Next question, but about a year ago, uh, Jasper, my eldest son, was diagnosed with epilepsy, temporal lobe epilepsy. And uh, within you know a week or so, uh, just coincidentally, I had uh, arranged to do a session with 5-MeO-DMT. I don't know if you know much about psychedelics, but uh, 5-MeO is known as the spirit molecule, the God molecule. It's like the most potent psychedelic uh, to do it with uh, Irvine Welsh, the author of Train Spotting. And okay. there were a lot of 
weird synchronicities out of that, which I, I won't get into, but <clears throat> one of the things that came out of that experience was the next day, actually, no, it was right after, as soon as I emerged from that terrifying hellhole of 5-MEO DMT, <laughs> uh, realized at that moment, I had never felt grief for Jasper. I mean, his, di his diagnosis is not terminal. Uh, he by all accounts, should live a perfectly normal, healthy life. But his trajectory has changed. Our trajectory has changed as a result of it. Even if fractionally, there's a reality that no longer is available to us. Um, and as I came out <coughs> of the 5MEO experience, all of a sudden, like just the grief uh, about Jasper in that moment just came out. And then I realized... <coughs> All the grief I've never let myself feel in my life um, started to come out. Just probably just like turning on the tap, probably not even close what? to the amount that's there. Um, but I realized also in that moment that I had never let myself feel grief in part because I was good at keeping my emotions in a box, but mm -hmm. also because I've always lived my life in a manner where I don't accept uh, an outcome where grief is a reality, right? So, you know, I would keep working and you know, exploring all solutions, new doctors, new drugs, whatever it was to make sure in the case of Jasper, uh, I wouldn't have to grieve it and, or the loss of a business that I would just like keep working or the loss of, like, I would just not accept yeah. the downside outcome as a possible outcome. And if you don't accept that, there's nothing to grieve was yeah. the unconscious logic that was going through my head. Um, now, here's where it's hard to ignore that it seems like there's something bigger going on, which is that was a year ago. Uh, we got him in to see a great doctor, Dr. Uh, Evan Wood, uh, at the Neurology Center of Toronto. And we started him on medicine and, and oxycarbazamine. And it works, worked perfectly until yesterday. And yesterday, he had his first seizure again. Uh, and here I am talking to you wow. today about yeah. grief and the coincidence, and there's a whole other layer of coincidences, wow. coincidences in quotes uh, that happened around all of that as well. Uh, all of that is a long-winded way of getting to my question, which was, were you a spiritual person beforehand? Are you a spiritual person now? And how has that changed your relationship to spirit? I'm so glad you asked. So <clears throat> I'm very spiritual now and, you know, trying endeavoring to be more unapologetic about it i think you're probably quite aware of you know the types of family that we both come from and yeah i don't i remember okay so to ask to answer your question of whether i was spiritual before so i remember as a kid feeling like i was spiritual but feeling like it was something embarrassing about me because and maybe actually our families are a little different in this way. So like my mom's side of the family was very secular, Jewish. So, you know, very much not really believing in a God or, you know, religion per se, certainly not kosher and all those things, yeah. but really connecting to like the culture of Judaism and like the foods and all of that. That was very much how I was raised. And I even went to a secular Sunday school where we weren't allowed to 
talk about God. And when I was 10, I was ridiculed in my Sunday, my Jewish Sunday school. I was ridiculed because I said I believed in God. Nobody in my family said that they believed in God. This was totally coming from me. And I think my grandfather had just died and I was, you know, feeling like I wanted to communicate with him. And so at night I would like go to sleep and then I would talk to him and then I would pray to God. And I had all these like things going on for me that I felt were so weird and I had to be secretive about. And then I went to this Sunday school and I announced that I believed in God and I was ridiculed. And this boy in my class started making fun of me. And he was like, you think that there's this old man with a white beard in the sky? Like, how do you how do you believe that? That's ridiculous. And I remember I just looked at him and I was like, no, I don't believe that. That's a metaphor. And that was like, you know, my parents were amazing. I came home and I told them the whole story. And they went in and they complained and they were like, you know, it wasn't even necessarily their beliefs, but they were like, she's allowed to say that she believes in God. And like, that's a story that my family tells over and over and over because they're just like, you were so funny as a 10 year old, just like telling this boy off and being like, that's a metaphor. And so my family loves that story. And I am so grateful that they keep telling it because I'm just like, it really helps anchor me into this remembering that like, I've always been spiritual. I just didn't know how to really get there and I kind of I I experimented with different things like I remember I, I went through this phase of childhood where I was trying to really get into Judaism and um understand kind of oh is this my spiritual calling and maybe I want to become more religious than my family which my family was never very religious yeah but even I feel like the side of the family that is religious like the side that you're more involved with Like they're religious, but it never to me feels like spiritual. It feels like it's all about the community and the religion and the rituals, which is amazing. But I don't remember ever having like spiritual conversations at like Passover Seder or anything like that. Right. So I always felt like I didn't fit in or I didn't know where I what I felt about all of that. And then I kind of lost all of that. And I was just like, whatever, going about my life. And then Brian was pretty spiritual and he was he was pretty open-minded I'd say that was more maybe more how I describe him he was very open-minded like he would listen to anyone he was interested in all sorts of wild things like because he was so open-minded he just would like grasp these really different things and he could kind of hold these different realities without really attaching to any of them but he just had these an open mind and I think that he was like into astrology and just into all this different stuff so I think that kind of got me a little bit more down that road but I I I definitely would say that since witnessing his death and definitely since his death, I have majorly connected more to my spiritual side and it has been a really helpful and supportive part of my grieving process. When he was dying, like I kind of hinted at before, I kind of felt this energy around us and it just felt spiritual to me and I felt like I was with him on this journey and I could feel his soul leaving his body and we were so connected and we were so alone for some of that time that I just almost felt like I went on this journey with him and experienced certain parts of the dying process along with him 
that really just shifted the way that I viewed death. And then feeling him actually die, it was like his energy was like around me and in the room and like filling every corner of the room. And it was like he was right there and he was so there, but he wasn't in his body. And that lasted, I don't even know how long actually, because I don't have a concept of time, but I I didn't tell anyone he had died. I just, because I, I had said to them, like, don't come in unless I call for you and or unless you're coming in to give him his medication, his pain medication. So when he died, we were alone for quite a while and I just felt his soul and I felt this experience of him being bigger than his body. And then I've just had like countless signs and synchronicities and incredible experiences with a few mediums that have just totally transformed the way that I view life. And I always use a fake name. I have a fake email. I have like an email address specifically for the mediums that is not connected to me. And I've just had enough experiences by now that I know that his spirit is still in existence i don't i don't know that i understand what his reality is like what that feels like um you know i i don't know i'm i don't know the details but i just know that he has not just ceased to exist right and i i you know, I struggle, I have struggled a lot with all of this because it just brings up all these big questions of then why did this happen? And if it's not just total random chaos, like, you know, what does this all mean? And, you know, what what is the purpose and all of that? And I don't know that I have all the answers to any of that. I think there's still so much that's mysterious to me. And for me, what spirituality really has taught me is is this the beauty of nuance in understanding that sometimes you won't understand something fully. And as someone who previously had always wanted to understand every single thing and so that it could be like in a nice little neat box and like tied up with a little bow and okay, I think I just had to understand this natural chaotic nature of what existence is. And, you know, it's hard because like, for example, with, with your son, with Jasper, it's like, it's like, okay, why would that happen to an innocent, beautiful boy? Why? And it's either just totally random and there's a comfort in that because it's just like, yeah, these things just happen, you know, and there's so much comfort in that. But, and, but then if you, for me, at least when I start to go down that spiritual road, I knock into this place where I'm just like, okay, but then, then what's the reason? And then there must be a reason. And then that leads me into like, no, that's toxic spirituality. Like there's not a reason for everything. And I hated when Brian died and people were like, everything happens for a reason and la 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 and I was just like no this didn't happen for a reason so it's like a struggle within me still of kind of like I don't know and maybe and that and that to me then feels just inherently messy which is uncomfortable (laughs) right I don't so I don't understand any of it fully or claim to but I do I do believe that I have more of a spiritual calling now and more of a trust that whatever path I'm on, however hard it is, that there is 
some kind of greater force so much larger than me that is somehow guiding this experience in some way and that it does bring comfort to me yeah at, at one point you may have noticed me smile Fia, as you said um i used to i like to have things tied up in a little box with a bow and quite almost the exact same words uh, a, a psychedelic experience i had last year i came out of it and the message to me was you like everything put in a box with a nice little bow and that's not uh-huh. the way things work. And uh, and here we are having this conversation. So all the synchronicities at play, but word for word, I was like, shit, wow. that is my experience as well. And, and part of my journey, um, you know, whether there's a purpose or a reason, I like to believe that there's a reason. And I've never thought about that as being toxic, toxic spirituality, uh, but there's always something to be learned, right? I think it, you know, I never, I never used to think of it as toxic spirituality either, but it's when something truly horrific happens to you, that is such a hard, it's such a hard thing to hear because it's just like, are you kidding me? How can there be a reason for this? Like, how can a little girl go through losing this incredible father so early on in her life? How can that be for a reason? Like, how, 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 how? And then it feels like then there's this pressure inherent in that to then make something from it or do something from it. And that's not always the case for everybody. Um, So I don't know. I feel like I walk this fine line of like, because I am making meaning out of my loss. I mean, I have changed my whole life to now support grievers and grief has given me all of these gifts of wisdom and understanding and gratitude, which... You know, maybe it's just a process because I feel like as time goes on and I really accept this lot in life more, it becomes easier for me to accept those parts of it. But in early grief, it can be really painful to hear those types of things said from people who have not been through something like this. It feels just like, well, that's easy for you to say, you know. I know that, that that's fair and, and I appreciate that. I hadn't really looked at it from that perspective. I remember the moment where I realized that there's kind of two ways to look at it. Um, one is to say this happened to me and, and the other is to say this happened for me. And one, yeah. one makes you a potential victim and the other yes. one gives you some agency in the process as awful as it is uh, to yeah. make something of it. And to me, that's always been very uh, empowering. Um, but I can also see well-meaning well-intended and sometimes maybe even true statements delivered at the wrong time can be incredibly thoughtless and painful. Um, And I think that's what we have to navigate all the time. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's taken me a long time to, I've heard that, that statement before and it's taken me a long time to accept it in this scenario. For sure. sure. Yeah. Yeah. I consider myself lucky that I, I haven't, I haven't walked in your shoes in that respect, and uh, and so I uh, I want to be. What am I trying to say? I don't want to imply any disrespect uh, or or tell you how you should feel or anything along those lines. I just this is the lens that has helped me through it, and uh, and I don't know if I were in your shoes, I would feel the same way. So I guess that's a way of saying like. Uh, I understand to some degree yeah. where you're coming. 
Yeah. I, I think it changes so much over time. I think it's it's just such a process and it just changes a lot as time goes on. And yeah, I yeah, I, I do like that statement now. Well, I don't know if I should say like, but I have accepted that that is likely what I'm inherit what I'm naturally doing. And it it's just a process, I think, of acceptance, you know? Yeah. 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 It reminded me when you're talking about grief being this initiation. It's like, it seems second to love, which is one of the other analogies you drew, uh, as being a very powerful way to remind you uh, that you're not in control. Uh, it takes control out of your hands. There can be a beauty to Absolutely. Yeah. And I think grief and love are really the just inverse of one another they're just the two sides of the same coin yeah and actually i feel like as i've deepened my grief or you know worked through my grief and felt my grief i've also expanded my capacity to love and i love in a different way and i have a different even just when i think of my relationship with brian like just that let alone that other impacts in other parts of my life but when i just think about him um yeah, grief just gives you this whole other window into loving somebody that you can't really have when they're just living, you're living day to day. Um, and I, I also, I'm curious, I thought about this a lot. I'm curious when I do have another life partner, I'm curious of that capacity to love will then extend onto that person and I'll be like, wow, I'm able to love in this totally different way because of this grieving process that I've been through now. I feel like it will. Yeah. Um, so I think that's going to be really interesting to see. I think for what it's worth, I think you're right. I think your capacity to feel all range of emotions have been expanded by this. Uh, there's something very elegant, I guess, in, in that. Uh, yeah. So. Well, this has been a, a wonderfully deep and meaningful and touching conversation, Mira. Thank you for making the time. Thank you for being so vulnerable and honest. Uh, thank you for sharing your story and, and doing your, the work you're doing. And if anyone listening uh, wants to get in touch or follow you, um, how would they do so? The best place is probably Instagram. So my handle is New Moon Mira on Instagram. And everything's there, you know, links to my website and the the group containers that I hold. And there's a lot of free content there as well. So that's probably the best place. Where did New Moon come from? So New Moon Mira was my Instagram handle from the first day that okay. I got Instagram when okay. Ryan was alive. And it was just an account where I shared, you know, pictures of my family. Um, and I kept it because... It just felt like the perfect name for this whole process. Yeah. So the whole thing is, again, very synchronistic where I just, you know, this name just popped into my mind and I was like, a oh, new moon Mira. That's, you know, I was like, Mira Simone was taken, like all the things were taken. So I was just like, what am I going to do? And new moon Mira came to me. And then I remember, I also remember Brian, uh, he said, oh, new moon Mira, where did that come from? Like he was really interested in, it really struck him, the name, too. And I was like, I don't know. I just feel like this energy of the new moon is something that's going to be important in my life. And then 
when he died and I started writing on Instagram, which was very like instinctual. It wasn't like I had this plan of like, you know, whatever that's happened. It was just sort of, oh, I'm, I just have these words like erupting out of me and I don't know what to do with them. So I'm just going to put them on Instagram because I don't know what else to do. I don't have the cognitive capacity to have a blog or anything. I just, there we go. This pro, this, this platform exists, this profile exists, blah. Yeah. And then it just, I realized that new moon is so much of the the energy of this grieving process of really like starting back to the bare bones and everything kind of being decimated in my life and this kind of open space that then existed for me to rebuild my life in a completely different way which is really what has come to be so both random and intentional I guess uh perfect way to make sure nothing fits too much into a box with a perfect little bow on it so yeah exactly thank you again (laughs) this has been a delightful conversation thank you for making the time thank you for sharing your story and the work you do it's uh i think incredibly important in this world thank you so much